Welcome to Face Your Faith with West Kenyon. It is our hope that today's study will encourage you to grow deeply in your relationship with God as we study the Word together. Now let's join West for today's study. This week we are going to look at the Lord's Prayer and deep into its powerful message and exactly why Jesus did teach us this very short prayer. So let's begin by reading the Lord's Prayer now from the New International Version. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is where the prayer officially ends. Yes, that is correct. The familiar remaining words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, was not directly tied to the recorded prayer written by Matthew. Surprised? Well, if you are, we will take all this apart and examine the entirety of this prayer now. I know there are also some of you who are perhaps offended that I am not using the original Lord's Prayer from the King James Version, but we will get to that in just a bit. Now let's look at our first couple of words of this prayer. Our Father. And just like we did with the series on Psalm 23, we can't go any further than this without knowing fully what we are saying here. So just what are we saying in these first two words? Well, We are professing and proclaiming that the Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, author and creator of the universe, is our Father, is your Father. And just what does that mean? Does that testify to the fact that we are all God's children because we recite this and so we can all claim God as our Father? And God's answer to that is no. Now remember, if you're getting hostile with me right about now, these aren't my words and my opinion. This is all from God and straight out of His Word, God's mouth to our ears. So let's clear this potential confusion up first. How do we know that we are not all God's children and know that not everyone can legitimately call God their Father? Let's look at Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But you say, I do that. I try my hardest to do the right things in my life. I give to the poor. I help people when they need it and treat my family well. I work hard and provide for their needs. I'm a good person and I believe there is a God. Is any of that, however, what God asked of us? Didn't God simply say you just need to do his will, what he asked you to do? So what is the true and real will of God? To know him, not just a God to have a personal relationship with him, God, the ability to call him Lord of your life, your Lord God, and call Jesus your Savior. Moving on to our next few words, who is in heaven? In these few words, we are admitting we know and agree to where he, God, lives. We are essentially giving his home address out. We are committing that heaven is God's home and that is where he resides. And so we have concluded by these first four words that we believe in heaven, God's home, and again, the existence and realness of God for who he says he is. Now, continuing on to the next set of words, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, what a word for the 21st century American English. It does sound regal though. 
it makes it sound like you are really saying something profound by using a word that you likely have no clue about. But nonetheless, it is indeed the perfectly proper and necessary thing to tell God while reciting this very common prayer. Here's the problem. Most people don't indeed have a clue what the word does mean, and so at least part of this prayer is now becoming a production for us. So what does Hallowed mean? It's real simple. It means holy, consecrated, sacred, and revered. All right, so the American English loses a bit of the royal qualities of the word, but there again in lies the necessity to examine and understand what we are actually saying. But are the definitions of hallowed that I just read really as simple as they sound? They are in fact immense words and take us back to our first two words, our father, and who that exactly is. So what does it mean to be holy? According to the dictionary, to be holy is to be exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness, one who is divine, devoted entirely to God and the work of God, venerated as sacred. I think that is pretty powerful. I think that really does sound like a great description of God and who I am to be to God. It is very interesting to see that his name being holy is bigger than just his name and qualities and position in the cosmos, but his name holy also has a direct effect on me, each one of us as to who we are to be and how we are to fit into his name and how we are to worship him. And if we reject that he, God, is indeed holy, consecrated, sacred, and revered, he is not in us and we are not in him. Let's look at John 14, 20. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And this shows the position of our Father in and through Jesus Christ and his position over and in all things, if we believe. We now move on to your kingdom come. And what exactly does that mean? Well, we get a glimpse of this in Matthew 4, 17, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And some versions say the kingdom of heaven is near. And I believe both translations deliver a very realistic understanding of what Jesus was telling us. First, Jesus said, I am here. I am God. I am man. I am the Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father but by and through me. In other words, I, Jesus, fully God, am right before your eyes. The kingdom of heaven is in front of you. Do you see it? I also believe it is important to note that this statement was also a foretelling of what is to come. That indeed, once and for all in the future, heaven will come down in fullness and glory to earth once and for all. We see these words again in Matthew 10:7. Jesus said, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus told his disciples, tell everyone God is indeed here on earth right now in the identity of a man, Jesus, and this is only a sneak peek of what is to come and come permanently once and for all. So be ready, repent and accept before it is too late. And this was their plea to everyone they interacted with. But is there evidence of what this might look like? Heaven on earth, heaven at hand. Let's take a look at Revelation 21, one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We also gain additional insight from John 18.36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. In short, he came to show and to warn each of us, my kingdom will one day fully come. So repent. We now move on to your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is simply a continuation of what we have just discussed. God will have his way in the end. The earth as we know it will conclude on his terms and the terms that are currently taking place in the kingdom of heaven right now. And those who have accepted Jesus as Lord in the end will joyfully submit to God and forever live in perfection and peace, a world without end. In addition, what is to come is not new, but is already being lived out in the kingdom of heaven right now. We are now at the point where we have acknowledged our relationship with God and his relationship with us, which automatically concludes that we agree that God is exactly who he claims to be by the simple fact that we admit we know where he lives and that he has shown himself as a man, fully God, and will one day put an end to sin and wickedness along with Satan and his followers. And he, God, will rule the new heaven and the new earth as it is currently being done. And that's a massive statement that we are making in one sentence made up of just 20 words. As we can clearly see so far, when we pray this prayer, we are exclaiming our acknowledgement, the power and authority and the promises of God. And that is big. Now we come to a new focus of the prayer, and that is of requesting from God for our needs as we continue to slowly progress through this prayer. And now we come to, give me this day my daily bread. Well then, that's a very bold and in God's face sort of statement, isn't it? Give me. Is that how we are to go to God? With a demand? Doesn't that just sound wrong? We aren't even saying, please, please, pretty please, if you should happen to find it in your good graces to give it to me, please, I beg of you. Isn't it fantastic? God wants none of that from us. He wants us to come to him directly and boldly. Don't forget now, this is Jesus who told us to say this and demand these things. These are his directions for us. So is this how you go to God in your prayer life outside of this prayer? Were you even aware that you were making a demand of God when you said this prayer? And our next passage will guide us further on this. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, there it is. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And that is exactly what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer. Be bold. You need this. I know you need this. You are not asking for anything outside of my desire, if indeed you aren't. So you can come to me in boldness and with a God-honoring demand in reverence and humility. I think this twists many believers, however, and is a major source of confusion in our prayer life as believers, our communication with God. And I believe the root of this confusion is seen as being bold with God as in disrespectful. 
And so we need to come like wilted flowers and drooping all over the ground. And that is not at all what we are called to do by the very one we are speaking to. Ironically, in our self-imposed, self-crafted attempt to be respectful, we are in earnest being perfectly disrespectful to God because we aren't following his directions. Isn't it true that you can be bold yet humble at the same time? But therein lies another problem. Many of us think that people who are direct and blunt and bold are mean-spirited and arrogant and know-it-alls, but that is simply not the case all the time. I have been accused much of my life of being mean and insensitive because I'm direct. I have gotten in trouble in a number of leadership roles at several churches for being direct, bold, and, imagine, honest. But I do make every effort to be very loving and caring in my direct ways with my non-flowery words. I desire to be humble and encourage people, but that cannot come at the expense of beating around the bush. We see throughout Scripture that Jesus was very direct, very bold, very in your face, and we should be so grateful that he was. We should be glad, we should be overjoyed. Jesus was not a man full of unmerited sympathy and abounding in caution of potentially hurting someone's feelings. He said what needed to be said, did what needed to be done, and did it all in righteous humility as an example for us. And Jesus too was criticized and is still being criticized because he made statements like, I am the only way. It is heaven or hell. You pick me or you pick Satan. You do what I tell you not to do and you will have consequences. Make your yes be yes and your no be no. Isn't it great? Jesus never taught us to be vague and mushy. No, he said, come to my throne boldly. Continuing on in our prayer, we arrive at, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. In some versions of the Bible, this is translated, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Over the years, I have heard that debts and trespassing have dramatically different meanings, but I believe both of these words actually describe, and very beautifully at that, what Jesus is trying to get across, regardless of the word choice, again, in the English language. We are, once again, however, at a very unique set of words. Forgive us. Again, another direct demand. Do this for me, God. Again, nothing in the prayer of, Lord, if you should find me worthy of your grace and mercy to forgive me, then please forgive me. None of that at all. Just like the demanding of our daily bread, this too we can demand since it is the perfect will of God to do this for us. And nowhere do we need to be arrogant as though we expect that we are owed this. But it is indeed for us from God and promised to us when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Forgiveness is ours. Freedom from sin is ours. So let's take it with thanksgiving and in honor of our Father and the Son who paid the price for us. So where are we at this point? We go and repent to God and accept and expect that he will forgive us of our wrongs. And so in turn, we are now to likewise forgive those who have wronged us. Forgive us our debts, our trespassing, as we forgive our debtors, our trespasses. And as is very human, we often take these words very narrowly. Debts, as in financial obligations, and trespassing, as in going on someone else's property. But the meaning behind each of these words is so much deeper than that. For instance, how many times have you trespassed in the past few weeks? What do I mean? Have you inserted yourself into someone's life without getting permission? 
Well then, you are trespassing in that person's life, and most everyone has done that at some point, recently. Yes, on occasion we need to intrude in order to keep someone from danger or intervene and trespass when a life or lives are on the line or with our kids who require direction and intervention. But outside of little kids, those moments of trespassing with adults should be very far and few between without getting permission. Whether it is bosses to employees, parents to children, colleague to colleague, friend to friend, child to parent, and employee to boss. We need to recognize when we are trespassing in someone else's life without permission. Another side of the same coin is when to recognize when others are trespassing into our lives and when we need to prayerfully go to God and put in place a very healthy and God-honoring boundary. Yes, even with family, boundaries are necessary. And now Jesus concludes this prayer with, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this can sound a bit odd, as if Jesus is the one who would be leading us into temptation and tempting things, and we have to ask him to please not do that. However, that is not what this is saying at all. God does not do wrong. He does not cause evil. What we see here, rather, is, yes, another direct demand. Lead us not. In other words, keep me from temptation, as only you can do. I don't know about you, but I stink at keeping myself from temptation. I am lousy at that, and all because I often like the tempting things of life, even though I know they are not right. I trespass into areas that are going to get me in trouble, and I know that ahead of time because God has clearly put a no trespassing sign on it. But doesn't that sometimes make it all that much more attractive? And don't say you don't think that way ever. We are all pretty sneaky and deceptive. This, however, sounds like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden also. God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree or you will die. A no trespassing sign was put up, if you will. And the temptation of Adam and Eve of finding out just what was so special about the fruit became so much for them to handle that they had to find out for themselves what God really meant. Yes, that's you and that's me on a regular basis. And when we get into these situations of temptation, that is the exact time we need to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Which takes us to the last seven words of this prayer. But deliver us from the evil one. Keep me pure for you, Lord. Keep me honest. Keep me focused on you and you alone. And help me not to hang out in front of the no trespassing sign, looking around to see if anyone will catch me sneaking in. Turn me around, Lord, and help me to walk away. And now. But Satan's goal is to trip us up, whispering in our ear, It's okay. No one will know if you just go have a quick look-see. I'll cover for you. And then we crumble. And we hear the sound of the Lord God walking into our lives and calling out, Where are you? Why are you hiding? Were you trespassing? And then oftentimes, when we get caught, we get mad at God and we blame God. Yes, you and I do that regularly too, just like Adam and Eve. Nothing has changed. You know, Adam got pretty heated with God and blamed God to his face for giving him that woman. It was that wretched, vile person, Eve, you put here with me that made me even do this. You, God, made a big mistake and now look at me because of what you did to me with this woman. Now I'm suffering because of you. 
And so too Eve followed suit with her husband and blamed the serpent, Satan, and said, it is his fault. We are just helpless, innocent victims of setup. We were framed. But one thing Adam and Eve neglected to see is the fact that they trespassed into an area where God told them specifically not to go. The tree had a no trespassing sign on it. And we know they did not go to God and say, Lord, God, deliver us from the evil one. No, they just moved right in and got cozy with it. And the result? They went into immediate and massive debt, the debt of sin. But was it truly a debt? Yes, it was, because Jesus had to pay the price. He paid our debt to sin. And the only way we could be set free was for Jesus to pay our debt off. Jesus bailed us out, and it was a massive debt to pay. Now the final words. And in some translations of the Bible, this prayer ends with, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And the reason that is not officially included in this prayer is because it was not recorded as part of the original text on the original scrolls. It was, however, a side note on the original scrolls, and so it was added as an addendum to the prayer we know today. So, is this addition wrong? Absolutely not. Is it God-inspired? Yes, I believe it is. Does it need to be discussed further? No. Is it God-honoring? Yes. Do we need to still debate over its authenticity? Yes, only if you have that much time to waste that God gave you. So this then is how we are not only to pray, but what we are to know and understand every time we say these amazing and powerful words taught to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go to God in prayer. And this then is how we will pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.